Thank you for listening to the Music Production Podcast. We got a great show today with Derek Sivers. Before we get started, I just want to tell you about the Music Production Club. This is a subscription service I offer where you can get a steady flow of music production tools in your inbox. Right now, you're hearing a little jam I'm doing for the January 2020 challenge. And members of my music production club will get all of the files, the projects, the presets I make in all of these jams. Head over to brianfunk.com mpc to learn more about the club. And you can watch me live stream each one of these jams for the rest of January on youtube.com slash brianfunkmusic. I'm also posting the full finished track or the finished jam anyway at instagram.com slash brianfunkmusic. So I hope you might check that out. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave a review on your podcast provider. And now, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Music Production Podcast. My name is Brian Funk and this is a show about all things about making music. Today my guest is Derek Sivers. And Derek has uh, played a major part in uh, music, I'd say, in general. Um, he created CD Baby, which is one of the ways I distributed an album back in the day. Two albums, actually. Um, he is an entrepreneur, musician. He was a former circus performer, <laughs> author, writer, and I think someone that has a really great perspective on creativity and um, kind of following his gut and his heart and not necessarily listening to what people are telling him to do. And I think uh, we are going to have a lot of fun talking about that. And he's also a very accomplished and trained musician. So we're going to learn some stuff about that too. So very excited to have you on here today, Derek. Thanks for joining me. Cool. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, good to have you. I've, I've followed your work for a long time. Um, various shows and podcasts and Rich Book which is anything you want, definitely worth checking out. I appreciate your brevity Thanks. and your um, <laughs> thoughtfulness and in, in how you approach things. And um, I'm excited to dive into some of the other stuff that I haven't really gotten a chance to hear a lot about. Of course, like your, your accidental creation of CD Baby is well documented. And um, I'm excited to hear about some of the other stuff that brought you to CD Baby in the first place and your music. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of uh, why I'm here. I listened to uh, one of your podcasts uh, and really liked it a lot, then listened to a couple more, and I just really like what you're doing. And uh, I really still think of myself as a musician first, and anything I did entrepreneur-wise came as like a side effect of being a musician. Mm. And it's funny, I feel like I got miscategorized after I sold my company, people thought I was a tech entrepreneur that just happened to do music the first time. But no, it was like quite the opposite. It was like, really, I was doing music and helping musicians. Mm. And then I kind of accidentally sold a company or accidentally start and sold a company. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm much happier talking about music. I think I have much more in common with musicians than I do tech entrepreneurs. I think that's probably a lot to do with your success as a business person because you created something that you thought you needed and you wanted. And the story goes, um, you know, the friends kind of said, hey, uh, can you put my CD for sale too? Yeah. And um, that's sort of like the most natural way, I guess, for a business to start. Yeah. And I mean, let's face it, a lot of it was just really 
good luck and good timing. You know, it was like 1997, the internet was just taking off. And so there were a lot of things. Like if you were a musician wanting to sell your CD at the time, there was no PayPal, there was no Amazon, there was no Bandcamp, there was no sound, like none of it. There was literally no place on the internet, on the entire internet that would sell your music, <laughs> not a single one. And so like just a few weeks after I started my thing, if you were a musician trying to sell your music online, there was like the, the only way to do it was there was a guy named Derek in New York who could do it hmm. for you. So it was just really lucky timing. I don't think I can take that much credit as an entrepreneur, but yeah, the other stuff we could talk about here, um, people tell me I'm an unconventional thinker, but I think even that kind of grows out of the musician mindset where you don't want to do what everybody else is doing. You know, it's like, it's almost your imperative, almost you're like your mission as a musician to do what nobody else has done before. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, unless you're just like a cover band in the Philippines or something like that, then you, you, you're trying to do something that nobody's done before. And so I think the same thing goes with everything else you do in life. So you look at it all like an experiment, a creative challenge. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess that's being an artist, right? You're, exactly. Um, you know, if you're painting by numbers, you're kind of, you know, it's not that interesting, but it's when you right. Call it can be good practice. Sure. It can be good craft, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, the real challenge is to do what nobody's done. You tap into an idea that I like to share with my students. I'm a high school English teacher by day, and one of the things that I remember myself being like kind of surprised by when I became like a teenager and started to become a young adult was that all of the adults in my life that were or all the people, you know, whether it's teachers, parents, or any sort of authority figure that would tell you what to do, were human beings just like me, then no smarter, just maybe a little more experienced. And I like to remind that, that idea to my students and tell them, you know, listen, wisdom and experience is very important. You can learn a lot from it. But don't forget that we're all just kind of winging it here. You know, there's no plan. Nice. And we're all just, well, I guess we'll do this. So the idea that there is like a prescriptive way to live life, I think is something that we all fall into very easily. Um, it's a good thing to question what people are doing sometimes. Yeah, even when you read like the, the masters disagree, meaning like, uh, I don't know, um, let's say like, uh, Socrates disagrees with <laughs> Aristotle. Aristotle disagrees with, uh, you know, Hayden or whatever. Just pick like yeah. any two philosophers from history that people consider both of them to be masters. They disagree with each other. So there's no one right answer. Unless we're talking like mathematics or something. Mm -hmm. There's no correct answer and wrong answer. It's all just different ways of approaching things. Um, so... Musically too, I love, uh, I mean, okay, we, we can talk mostly about music itself, but just a little <laughs> bit on the music business side of things. It's fun that even when you hear a rule in the music business, mm. like touring is crucial, well, then there's plenty of examples to the opposite that prove that no, touring isn't crucial. Here's a long list of artists who have become incredibly successful without doing a live show. And if somebody tells you that, you know, you're getting 
airplay or something like that is important or having a great website, anything that people tell you is crucial, you can show plenty of examples to the opposite to show that it's not. So yeah, even the things you hear in business when people say you must do this and must do that, eh, it's just one approach. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And especially the way things change these days with the music yeah. business, for instance, or any kind of business, it's it's probably dangerous to do what people are doing all the time in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe you want to keep uh, one foot in <laughs> expectations and one foot in trailblazing. But I guess now we're making another music comparison. You know, like yeah. if, you, if you do something musically that's like, I'm not even using notes, man. There's no notes. There's no rhythm. It's like, okay, well, you know, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> but, but probably the the blend that will find you the widest audience and be creatively satisfying will probably be one foot in each, you know, mm -hmm. have traditional song structures mixed with interesting instrumentation or really well-crafted melodies mixed with uh, interesting harmonies or textures behind them or whatever it is, you know, it's a kind of one foot in safety, one foot in risk. Yeah, we, we still appreciate familiarity, I guess. But yeah, the unexpected is part of what gets us excited too. Yeah. Do you find too that's like if you go too far either direction, it's unsatisfying? Yeah, because, well, I get this thing when I'm writing music and this is more, I think, like ego and insecurity tapping in. But if I'm doing something that's too predictable, been done too often, I, I get like uncomfortable with it. And I think that's, I think there's definitely a thing in my head saying like, this is not intelligent enough. Right. However, a lot of times when I kind of let go of that, I find some of my favorite stuff I come up with is rooted in some sort of familiar idea or something simple that I've right. just twisted a little bit. Yeah. A lot of pop songs, a lot of like big number one hit pop songs are almost nursery rhymes Yeah, in their simplicity, you know, just like you know, there's like one, four, five, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, four, one, five, <laughs> and uh, you know, these little do-re-mi melodies mm -hmm. and that's the big hit. And yeah. you know, there's like, that artist has done a hundred other songs that are way more interesting but the one that's as simple as the nursery rhyme is the one that everybody likes yeah and and i know i'm like that too there's definitely music that i know is more intellectually stimulating right. that i've sat down and forced myself to enjoy <laughs> yeah but a lot of times it's the simple you know pop song that gets me or or you know the classic maybe a beatles song or something that just you, you know it's funny i'd never thought about this before um well, for, I think a lot about deep happy versus shallow happy. Mm -hmm. That deep happy is setting out to achieve something really difficult. You may be miserable while doing it, but damn, when you're done, that's a deep happy feeling. Right. Shallow happy can just be sitting there with ice cream watching TV, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and deep happy is ultimately more satisfying than shallow happy. So I think about this stuff a lot. And I have a seven-year-old kid and I teach him a lot about the difference between deep happy and shallow happy. And uh -huh. I was so, uh, I, you can never tell if they're listening sometimes, but <laughs> it was, it was really satisfying when 
it just out of the blue, like we hadn't talked about deep happy versus shallow happy in a few months. And he, uh, he came back from school one day and he goes, dad, there's a new kid in school. I said, oh, cool. And he said, and he's really cool. So I taught him about the difference between deep happy and shallow happy. <laughs> I was wow. like, what? <laughs> anyway, but okay. So I hadn't thought of this until you just said it. Um, like smart, happy versus dumb, happy being like, you can listen to some really complex piece of music that because you're a trained musician and you understand what that composer did there and you can appreciate the nuances of how much work it took to put together that arrangement or whatever it may be, that can be like smart appreciation, hmm. um, smart enjoyment. But then there's just that thing where you just put on a dumb, fun ACDC song and you're just like, fuck yeah, this is a good song. Yeah. And it can just be like dumb appreciation, which isn't to mean it's a bad thing. It's just like, you don't need to be smart to appreciate how good this is. But, or yeah, you don't need to be smart to appreciate this, but there is a different layer of that like smart appreciation of something when it's like using what you've been trained in to appreciate the nuances that most people probably can't appreciate. But then as a creator, if you're only creating things that scratch your deep satisfaction or your smart uh, creator itch, then you can't really expect many people to appreciate those <laughs> things too, point. except your fellow craftsmen. Mm -hmm. That's the feeling I get when I stand in front of a group of 15 year olds and try to get them to read Shakespeare. Oof. I can appreciate it and I can enjoy it on that deep, happy level. But I always tell them, I'm like, listen, this is great literature. It's really well written. You'll learn a lot and there's a lot of great themes, but I'm not going home and reading this for fun. You know, I'm studying right. it. I'm, I'm digging, as you say, to keep that kind of metaphor going. You, just, you have to do some work to get something out of it. Right. So when they say, do you really enjoy this, Mr. Funk? I'm like... I have to stop and say, in a way, <laughs> you know, it's like I enjoy conquering it <laughs> and uh, and digging yeah. out the gold. But yeah, it's 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 heady and it's it's um it's almost like exercise to find the fun in it. This is a fun thing to talk about. I hadn't really thought about that so much. Like even just you're right. Like something like reading Shakespeare or listening to a Bartok string quartet. You're like, man, this is dissonant as fuck, but wow, this is some interesting stuff going on in here. <laughs> um, and yeah, enjoyment, yeah, but on a different, yeah, you're right, like a digging deeper kind of level. That's, that's really funny, until, the, until whatever, five minutes ago, I hadn't thought about this simile between these two things, that you know, the deep, happy things in life when you set out to achieve something difficult, and that, that even something like listening to music can have a deep happy versus shallow happy aspect to it or literature. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Maybe there needs to be a little suffering in your happiness. <laughs> yeah. Or, I mean, you know, uh, let's say there, there's, um, we shouldn't say needs to be, but there's, there's a place for that. It's a yeah. different level of, of satisfaction as a creator too. Cause I, I guess we've all probably anybody listening to this has had it happen where you create something that is so clever you know, or complicated and you're really proud of it and you play it for your friends and they go, eh, I don't know, dude, that just yeah. doesn't work for me. Uh, 
And you're just like, well, fuck it. I like it uh-huh. <laughs> because you know that it was like fun to make it or figure out how to do that. But other people don't like it. Um, yeah. Anyway. That's like art that requires an instruction manual on how to <laughs> enjoy it. <laughs> right. You're not going to like this unless you understand these right. key components. Hmm. But that, I guess that's, um, that's good for academics and stuff. Yeah. God, sorry. This, this is like a, this is no. a, a funner subject than I counted. I'm even thinking, thinking I, I like computer programming. I enjoy mm. it. I do it for, I actually like bounce out of bed in the morning to get back to what I was programming the night before. And um, <clears throat> I was thinking even in programming, there are easy languages and hard languages. And there's a computer programming language called Haskell that real computer nerds say like, oh man, Haskell is like the deepest thing. Like, man, you, once you go to Haskell, you can't come back. No other language can compare. And I almost wonder if it's this, if it's the equivalent of Bartok string quartets or something, uh-huh. you know, like, like it's hard to appreciate, but if you really get into it, it's like a deeper level of, mm. it's a deeper happiness. But Some modular synthesis. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That, there's, I guess there's something to be said for that. And, I, if you can maybe realize that you're, you know, you're going after deep happiness while you're doing it, maybe that process will be more enjoyable. Right. Through the suffering. <laughs> right. Almost like it, one of these uh, dichotomy spectrums or whatever you want to call it, where, you know, people who are introverts are often told that they're shy or told that they're no fun or teased for wanting to go home early or skip a party or whatever. And it's not until you have this term introvert extrovert that you can kind of justify it in your head and go, okay, it's, it's not that I'm no fun. It's not that I'm shy, Mm. not that I'm timid. It's just like, you know, an hour at a party is enough for me. I don't need six hours at the party after one hour I'm done. And you can, yeah, you can kind of, rationalize no not rationalize it what am i saying it's you can understand it better Hmm. in your own head if you've kind of got these labels to put on it and categorize it that way and yeah you're right maybe this like deep happy versus shallow happy when it comes to even creating something complicated or listening to something or reading something complicated you can understand it it's like okay i'm doing a difficult deep happy thing now Hmm. but if at any point it becomes too difficult yeah maybe i just need to go put on some ACDC and eat some ice cream for a bit to, uh, you know, before I come back to Balance it. Balance that out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I need a better example than ACDC. <laughs> Just, they, <laughs> I heard some ACDC last night and I had that moment where I was like, damn, man, this is fun. Anyway. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's an important way to enjoy music. It doesn't have yeah. to be, you know, something that challenges you all the time. And right. I think you can, ACDC, I think is actually a good example because, it's um you can enjoy it kind of like viscerally you just feel yeah. it and the energy will get you you don't have to think about it and mm-hmm. when you do look at it you can start to dissect the guitar playing and then you know you're starting to get into a deeper level there yeah but maybe not lyrically i mean it's kind of mm-hmm. it's what it is and and, <laughs> and honestly not even guitar wise yeah hey, there's some little solos but whatever it's like it's just it's just straight ahead but yeah and same with same with some of those classic pop songs. Mm. You know, you listen to some extremely well-written, well-crafted songs from the 1960s. Oh, you know, here's an example I was just thinking of. I'm, I've never been a big fan of the police. Mm. 
But I remember like Sting, um, Andy Summer, and what's the drummer's name? Um, uh, Stuart Copeland. Good, thank you. Um, they were all very accomplished mm. musicians that could play very sophisticated music. And some of those, um, if you listen to like album tracks on old police albums, they did some pretty complex stuff, but then they would have this simple song, like every breath you take or whatever. And they'd say, okay, this is what we're doing now. Like we're just doing a, like just a dead simple, that's kind of what I meant. Like that's like a nursery rhyme song for me. It's like dead simple, skip all the complexity and just get right to the point. And yeah. You know what I'd say about that song um, is there's almost nothing when I think about it, it's kind of one of those like perfectly written songs too. There's really nothing to change. It, it takes you through all the parts. It, it goes, um, you know, verse, chorus. It's got a nice little bridge. And, um, but but it's almost- You sound like a realtor. And we got a kitchen, we got a bedroom. You got a, here's your bathroom. Got a it's verse, chorus. funny you say that. My brother is a big police fan growing up. So okay. I was exposed oh, to a okay. lot of, and he's now a realtor too. <laughs> funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a funny connection that just happened there. But I think there are certain songs too that are just like crafted so well and they just work, they run well. It's like a, you know, a reliable car almost. I love well-crafted pop songs. Mm. No matter how sophisticated my other tastes, like my probably my favorite my two favorite kinds of music to listen to these days are Debussy and uh, traditional Persian music. There's a, uh, a streaming station called um, Radio Darvish. And I just put it on quietly in the background when I'm doing other things. And I just love having this like traditional Persian music streaming. And it's just kind of, it, it's almost, to me, it's like somebody in the next apartment is cooking <laughs> something really interesting. It just kind of wafts into my yeah. home. Um, but besides those things, man, I'm, always a sucker for a well-crafted pop song mm. and friends are sometimes surprised when they you know like a, a britney spears comes on i'm like oh hell yeah and they're like what how are you into britney spears i'm like because it's the <laughs> hit me baby one more time is a pop masterpiece yeah it's a perfectly crafted song and and they just look at me weird i'm like yeah because i mean you know most non-musicians they kind of hear the surface they hear the production or they hear the artist image they you know they think of who britney spears is and yeah. what she's done in her life but i'm just listening to the the crafted melody i that, i forget who wrote that song but i heard it was like originally pitched to tlc and oh yeah he said no so it was given to this little unknown teenager named britney so yeah when i'm when i'm listening to a song like hit me baby one more time i'm probably listening more to whoever this unknown creator producer yeah. is. Unless I wonder if that was Max Martin. Anyway. Um, That's an interesting choice. Um, I think I was about 17 or 18 when that song came out. Yeah. And um, a band I really loved at the time called Travis did a cover of that. Right. I and remember a, that. And then acoustic cover and they said, they made a comment, you know, before they played it, like, you know, this is a good song. Like you, you take away the pop, you know, and and the icon of Britney Spears. Exactly. And look at it for what it is. It is a beautiful song. They did a really cool yeah. version of it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's almost funny to hear it taken with all that stuff taken out of it. Yeah. Then you get to when just I made a see living, for what it is. 
when I made a living as a musician uh, in the, I did about a thousand shows at colleges around the U.S. Um, for a few years, I did the university mm. gig circuit, and I do a lot of covers. I would kind of do like a three-hour set, which would be like two hours of covers and one hour of originals. And the only cover songs I would do is where I could take something that you would never expect a guy on guitar to do. <laughs> so I would do like uh, a lot of female pop songs. Um, so do like, you know, like an old Cindy Lauper and then TLC and Alanis Morissette or whatever. Like, uh, but always switching it up. So it's like you'd start playing the song and people would say, it sounds a little familiar, but it would, it would never, you'd never recognize it right away. You'd have to like get into the verse for a while before people go, oh my God, is he doing, oh wow, weird. Yeah. Um, like the Travis example. Yeah. Well, something funny happens when you take a song and you change the gender of the person singing it or, right. or the age or the, you know, all, any of those kind of aspects really yeah. can flip it on its head. Yeah. And, um, again, this is something I've thought about, I guess, through like teaching English is you don't always want to confuse the narrator with the author because I could write a story from the perspective of a seven-year-old girl, right? I don't, I can do that mm. as a man. I might not understand it very well, but that doesn't mean whoever's singing the song or whoever's the character in the song is the person that wrote it or the Right, and what you said about Britney Spears is we tend to just like we can't unstick the two. I get this right. feeling a lot with movies with some famous actors where I can't, I can't really see the character Tom Cruise is playing. I can only see Tom Cruise, and he's right. the one chasing the car. And <laughs> yeah, I think exactly. he does a lot of his stunts too. So it's kind of fair to say that about him. But I see yeah. the superstar. I don't always see the character. Right, and um. Yeah, and then there's some act. Yeah, some actors. It's it's hard to not know. Yeah, it's hard to not know that's Brad Pitt, that that's Leonardo DiCaprio. But on the other hand, there's some actors. Uh, I think his name is Oscar Isaac. Um, dude, I, I watched like four different movies that Oscar Isaac was in, and didn't realize that it was the same guy. Hmm. I, I think he did. Um, what is it called? Um, Llewellyn Davis or something like that. Like he plays like a folk musician in Greenwich Village. Uh, and he's the star of the movie. And then the next movie, he plays like a, a superhero villain where he's in the, like the big thing. And I didn't recognize it was him. And then he was in Ex Machina, uh, where he, again, he's like the main character, but he, he actually looks like this. He's like shaved head and a beard. Again, yeah, okay. recognize it as the same guy. And then he was in the new Star Wars movies as the, the pilot named Poe. And again, I was like, oh, who's that actor? And then I, I looked him up on IMDb. I was like, oh, shit, that's the Llewellyn Davis folk Oh my God! And that's also, and it's. I love it when a an actor can really disappear into the roles. Mm. So, speaking of this musically, you just made me think. Sorry, what were the two words that you said? The narrator versus the author. Yes. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah, I like that. The the I hadn't thought about the term the narrator, but it's something that I don't know of any contemporary musicians that are doing a different narrator voice. But back in the 70s, I think, um, Randy Newman was infamous for being, uh, for writing songs where he wasn't the narrator. Hmm. So he was the author of the song and he was the one singing it, but he wasn't singing it as himself. He was singing it as someone else. So I think he had this, 
hit in the 70s. I think this was him. And again, sorry if this isn't, uh, if I got it wrong, but uh, called Short People. And it was a, ended up being a big hit, big hit song. But I think lyrics were like, short people got no reason to live. And people were mad at him, like, Randy Newman, how dare you say that? And he goes, no, no, no. I was just writing the song from the perspective of like a really prejudiced person that thinks that short people have no reason to live. Mm. And people would have a really hard time wrapping their head around that because we just assume, like you just said about Britney Spears, that like we assume that if somebody's up on stage with a microphone, you know, we know the routine here. This is a singer expressing their their personal feelings through a public address system. Mm. That's how this works. And you know, you don't people don't get up musicians aren't acting. Yeah, we we just assume that musicians aren't acting. Right. Uh, and I guess David Bowie confused that a bit too. Except yeah, he, yeah. <laughs> he would do it almost in that Oscar Isaac kind of way. Well, I guess we knew it was David Bowie, but he would make you believe that this is who he is now artistically. You know, he'd put on the Ziggy Stardust makeup and and like he would be the the Ziggy Stardust David Bowie for a few years, and then he'd put on a suit and be this other guy, and we'd think, oh, this is just who he is now, mm. and then he just deliberately change who he is and um yeah narrator persona it's i don't i don't feel anybody by the way if i'm wrong and there's somebody that is putting on personas and playing narrator if you're listening to this please email me and tell me so because i would love to discover some i wouldn't be surprised if there are a lot of people doing things like that maybe even i don't know if i just pictured marilyn manson for instance i I don't know right. if that's a character or, you know, that's an interesting one too, I guess. Where Right. But even that, I mean, like that's, you know, even Marilyn Manson at this point, that's like 20 years ago, right? So yeah, true. I don't know if there's somebody currently famously doing it. So yes, mm. listeners, please let us know. <laughs> I find a lot of times I do like to approach writing songs from, perspectives I might not have ever been in and um I I sometimes get stressed out that this will be interpreted as me like this Mm -hmm. no I'm not upset in our relationship I'm totally (laughs) cool with it I just right I'm I'm feeling for this situation and what it might be like and it's fun to put yourself in there and just explore it a little I think that's a cool way to write songs is to just kind of live that life a little bit yes did you ever see an artsy film called 32 Short Films about Glenn Gould? No. I highly recommend anybody listening to this, go find this movie. If you're this is one of those like deep happy things. If you're a musician, okay. you'll get this movie. And if you're not, you won't. 32 it, so the film is actually called 32 Short Films about Glenn Gould. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's called this is because Glenn Gould's so he was a Canadian classical pianist in the 1950s and 60s that was known to be one of the best ever. And his uh, thing that he was most famous for was doing Bach's Goldberg variations, which I think might be 32 variations on a theme. And so that's why it's 32 short films about Glenn Gould. So inside this one 90-minute movie are 32 tiny little snippets almost like 32 different little pieces and i wouldn't be surprised if they match up to the goldberg variations in some way that i'm unaware of but um it was a great movie about the creative process because it's also 
uh, slightly fictionalized, but basically true story about Glenn Gould about um, it shows you how, sorry, it's like biographical snippets of his life, but played by somebody. Um, but it showed you how he started out as a traditional concert pianist and he would go tour and do the things. And at a certain point he said, I don't like this relationship mm. of I'm sitting on a stage and a few thousand people are sitting in uncomfortable chairs watching me do it. I don't like this one, two thousands relationship. Um, I'd prefer that music was a one-on-one -on -one relationship directly from me to the listener. So he quit touring, quit the stage and only did recordings for the rest of his life, which of course purists were furious about. And then what I love is he said, he went beyond that to say, ideally, I think the listener to artist relationship should be a one to zero relationship where we don't even know who the artist is. The relationship is really between the listener and the music. Mm -hmm. I wish we could remove the performer, the artist, the, even the writer from this so you could just be somebody enjoying music, not the stuff around it. Mm. So you can see where I'm going with all this. Yeah. Like, the stuff we're talking about, like you wish that you could write a song expressing a, an emotion or a point of view that is not Brian Funk's point of view, but you're kind of worried that you'll be scolded for doing so. Or I've had it, that come up in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you yeah, mean I think a lot, by that? <laughs> right. And a lot of artists have felt that, especially, I mean, God, you know, again, it's like the Randy Newman example at this point, it's like 40, 50 years old. But if you go back and read some of his interviews, he had to be extremely defensive because mm. he did this over and over again. He, he put on a few personas. I think maybe most of the songs he wrote were coming from a different, he was putting on a narrator. He was putting on a point of view, but everybody kept thinking it was him and he kept having to defend himself saying, no, I just, I wrote that from a point of view. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, but if yeah, you removed the, if the artist slash performer was anonymous, you could get rid of that entirely. Nobody would have to defend themselves because we wouldn't even know who to yeah. attack. It's, maybe that's why uh, some authors use pseudonyms and, Yep. When yeah, I was even... studying English literature, there's um, a, lo a lot of people writing about literature, the critics, the literary criticism, and there's a bunch of schools of thoughts. There's some of them that will look at any piece of literature as a product of the time it came out of, so you can't separate the two. There's others where you have to look at the author's life to consider what's being written, even if it's fiction. And then there's others where you don't look at any of that stuff. Just let the words speak for themselves. I was kind of like that myself. I mean, I think it's interesting to say, give a piece of literature a read from a feminist perspective or give it a read mm. from all kinds of, you know, you name it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but the one where you just let it speak is, is I think, pure in a lot of ways. But the other the other schools of thought would argue that like you can't have pure literature. You know, there's always life experiences, always the time and the culture and all of that stuff factor in. But I don't know. I get the feeling that that's something we could creatively play with. Like, what if you were to record an album and then find a way to play it all in a certain style, um, so that it would actually sound like something done in the 1950s. 
like thorough and through convincingly sound like it's the 1950s. And then you make an artist persona, an artist name, and you even find a way to take some old photos or something <laughs> so that you could put out something as a re-release right. of a 1950s artist. And then suddenly now you're artistically playing with that thing that you even just said about literature. Like, oh, well, you know, it's of its time. Mm. But hey, you know, we're creators. We could create something that we could use um, in the same way that, uh, w sorry, hold on, I'm gonna make a weird comparison, but one of the things I appreciate most about electronic music is it started playing with uh, uh, timbre. Is that what you call it? Like, you know, the low pass, high pass. Low pass, high pass was not a thing that you could really do on acoustic instruments mm. so directly. And I so appreciated like electronic music is able to play with it. It's like, it's like, we've just taken one note in one rhythm, but just by playing with the spectrum of the frequencies that you're letting pass through, it's like you've kind of introduced a new, uh, yeah, a new spectrum of, of uh, yeah, we've got tempo, we've got pitch, we've got this, and now we've got yeah. frequency spectrum to play with. Well, now could you imagine adding uh, the artistic perception of of time and image as another instrument you can play with as a creator. Hmm. Um, put out something, create something that's that's old. Create something that's done by somebody else. You know, quote unquote. I like that idea a lot. It's almost like uh, throwing a new chapter in the history books. You know, time <laughs> traveling or something. And because we're writing the books, baby, so we can stick in chapter six, even though we're on 68 now. <laughs> yeah, Why right. not? But that's a cool, I mean, there's a lot of fun you can have with that artistically, you know? Yeah. You're really, you're dissecting a lot about culture and it's also kind of like a, in the perspective of the rearview mirror. I think, um, mm. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that could is, be a lot of fun to there, really create that. Like, Superstar of 1965 that... Right. Well, didn't um, they do a movie where everyone forgot the Beatles and he had to kind of... Oh, yeah. It's almost like that in a way. You're right. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a fun creative way to yeah. uh, to reimagine uh, an alternate past. There's... um. So after you 2 did Achung Baby and then maybe one more after that, the same guys went into the studio with Brian Eno, who produced Achung Baby, and they did something, they called themselves the Passengers, I think. And they did an instrumental album that was a soundtrack to a movie. Um, they Basically, they recorded a soundtrack album. Hmm. But if you look it up and you look into it, there was no movie. They invented the movie and they made a soundtrack to a movie that never existed. Um, and that was their creative challenge to themselves. A, a very Eno type thing to do. He loves those kind of things. And that's what I love about him. Yeah. I, I like his theories more than his music itself. Um, but yeah, that was a fun way to, because uh, if you read the liner notes of the album, it says, okay, this, is, this music is the scene where, you know, the hero has just come back and he's walking through the fields. We see him for the first time since he's been gone. You know, they, they described the scene that this yeah. piece of music was for. And that was just a fun creative exercise. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you something I don't think I've ever told anybody publicly is way back in like 1995, the internet 
it's so brand new. It's like uncommercial. Like people had email addresses, but we were still just starting to poke out and see what this thing was. Um, I found Brian Eno's email address. And so I sent him an email and he replied, which blew my mind. But the reason he replied is because I told him an idea I had that was kind of inspired by passengers. And so it was this, it was to, to make a soundtrack album to a movie that you say is coming out. Um, but every track, so you know how soundtrack albums often work when it was like, uh, not when um, Trent Reznor does a soundtrack to a whole movie, when it, they'd have like different artists doing song. It's like the, the, uh, the movie had picked songs from different artists. And so the soundtrack album to City of Angels or whatever would have like 15 different artists doing one yeah. track each, right? So my idea was to record a soundtrack album to be 15 different artists, but I would be all of those 15 artists. And it would be my creative challenge to sound, to, to make it so that you couldn't tell it was one person doing all of this. Uh, and then it would be for a movie that didn't exist. <laughs> so I, I emailed this idea to Brian Eno and I said, hey, this is inspired by you. And, and he replied back with, with an exclamation point or two because he said that he had the same idea and thinks it would be fun and let him know if I do it. Yeah. But, then, <laughs> but then I accidentally started CD Baby and things got distracted. <laughs> things got away from that idea. Out of hand, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Hmm, well. If anybody wants to do that idea, I don't think anybody's done it yet. And Brian Eno would be very happy if you did. Yeah. Maybe he'll still reply to that email too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this maybe brings us to um, one of the things we wanted to talk about a little bit, which are some of these, um, I heard you say, um, I think it was on the EDM producer podcast, which I, I caught um, a few months back. And you were talking about doing music as like a series of exercises, a sort of like, I think you were talking about um, Tom Waits maybe at that point, but um what if I did this with that? And um, sometimes maybe it seems obvious to you while you're doing it, but to another person, it might come out as something totally fresh. But I was curious if you had any of those in mind, if there are any particular exercises or challenges you've tried. Maybe it's kind of like what you mentioned even with the movie soundtrack, but um, I, I, I was uh, just wondering um, if you had any to spare and share with us as we're all sure, trying but, to figure out what to do with our next piece of music. <laughs> well, before we do, um, when I got your question about that, and yeah, to those of you listening, yeah, Brian sent me uh, an email before we talked about some things we could talk about or that he was curious about. After getting your question by email, it made me think first, doesn't everybody do this? And this isn't rhetorical. And actually, if you don't mind, I want to ask you, Brian, about like your process. When you're sitting down to write a song, are you just going with whatever happens to flow through you or don't you give yourself these little let's see what happens if kind of challenges well there's a big part of me that loves to be the free spirit when i get into the studio and just see what inspiration will hit me and try things out and play around often when i do that i get nothing really accomplished okay. sometimes really cool stuff happens unexpected surprises but i find that I'm best when I do have some kind of aim, some kind of goal. Um, right. The example that really sticks out to me more than anything of anything I've ever worked on 
was I did a project with a friend of mine where we made songs. He's a special education teacher. So he uses music a lot to guide his students around. And we made a set of songs mostly directed for kids with autism to teach them proper or acceptable social behavior. Social stories is like the, the tool that they use in education. And it might be a story about how to sit in a restaurant and you know just behave. And um, we turned them into songs. So we made a bunch of songs. We have songs like um, one, two, three, how calm can we be? Um, Quiet hands is one. <laughs> okay, we, we've got uh, our fingers don't belong there. There, there, a whole bunch of little songs that the point is to teach this lesson, and the point is not to be artistic. You know that whole that mm. was a relief too. What we talked about earlier, being intelligent, we just got to mm -hmm. throw that away because that's not the point. In fact, right. we want the songs to be kind of simple and nursery rhyme, memorable. Mm -hmm. And what blew me away about that project, I think we did eleven songs. And it was just so easy. Like everything came so easy. The lyrics came easy, the structure of the song, the recording. I mean, it was just a real project that was just like rolling a ball down the hill. And mm. we had that aim. We had that very specific goal for everything. I think when I show up with an idea, it the more well-formed the idea, the more productive I tend to be. You know, you know where you're going. Right. And why? Like you, I think that's the, the other thing you said there is you knew you knew why you why, were doing yeah. this. You had a specific aim, whereas like when we sit down to kind of like, hey, I think I'm gonna write a song or maybe a lot of what a lot of the the mental labor we do is figuring out like, what am I doing here? Why do, what's the purpose <laughs> of this? What's the point of this song? Yeah. I think it, it's good to think about what the audience is gonna be doing. When your song mm. is on, are they dancing at the club? Are they, you know, getting over a breakup? Are they, what are they doing? So I'm doing a, a thing that um, a lot of people are doing right now called Jamuary. And the idea is to just record yourself jamming like a little piece of music and share it. Um, and it, it's, it's, you have to, you're supposed to do it every day. And it, it's surprisingly challenging. And it's also surprisingly easy when you commit to it. Like you, mm. you have the time, but you have to, you know, suck it up and do it. Yeah. My, I've done it a few days where I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And there's some days when I had a structure, but the best days I've had, I'd say, were when I was trying to just create music for people that are either going to sleep, meditating, or maybe studying. And it's just this sort of ambient drone type of music. Maybe because that is a little bit easier than writing complex melodies and stuff. But all of the action in that kind of music happens in the timbre, in the filtering, in the tones. Mm -hmm. It's not rhythmic and it's really not very melodic. But in order to keep it interesting, there's subtle shifts in tones and stuff like that. And I had a very specific idea and I, I did that for four of the days and I came up with four tracks that I liked. Um, but I had the idea in mind, this is why you're gonna put this on. This yeah. is what it's for and this is these are my parameters too. These are my limitations. I'm not going to be doing any drums or anything rhythmic or, or really melodies. It's just gonna kind of flow in notes. Right. But that cool. was very specific. Well, then even musically, do you ever sit down with a really specific thing like, 
you heard a certain melodic interval or phrase that inspires you. And so you sit down like, I want to do something like that melody. And you sit down with that aim of making something like that melody. Yeah. Um, that's what happened to me last night, actually. It was, uh, I was listening to the Jesus and Mary chain <laughs> mm -hmm. and um, I was just enjoying how simple their progressions were. I mean, I could listen to it and probably know the progressions just because they're mm -hmm. so familiar. One, four, one, five, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, but I was also really impressed with how enjoyable it was, you know, the simple melodies and just the drenched guitars and, you know, distortion. But mm -hmm. what I came up with wasn't really in that vein. You know, right. I, I went into it with that in mind, but yeah. it wound up being acoustic and really quiet, but with fairly simple chords with a little spice here and there. Um, so, sometimes it's it's like just knowing you have a target is helpful even yep. if you totally miss it with your yeah. arrow or whatever <laughs> well you, you'll hit something not necessarily missing it but i love this concept that we are imperfect mirrors that hmm. even if you're trying to imitate something you can't because you're warped <laughs> you right. are warped in your own particular brian funk way yeah. so that even if you tried to completely imitate whatever song by whatever artist, it's never going to sound exactly like them. It's still going to sound, it's going to have your own bent to it. Mm. That that idea has comforted me a lot because I think when I first started with music, a lot of it's imitation. I mean, I learned guitar off of Nirvana and, and mm -hmm. all the alternative grunge rock that was happening at the time. Um, and there was always like a fear, like you're just copying what you're, you know, learning from, and and then mm -hmm. sometimes that's very true. But I think even when you try to copy things, like you said, you'll you're one way or another going to screw it up and make it mm -hmm. your own. <laughs> yeah, or you could do a very kind of academic copy of something, right? So when I was a teenager into guitar, I learned all of my favorite guitar solos, note for note, and I could sit there with a recording and play along and exactly imitate all of these guitar solos. And then later, as I got my own little home studio and I was learning production. Uh, a few times, yeah, I would set out to imitate this Prince song or whatever, uh, every instrument of it. I think it especially, I, Prince was inspiring to me because I knew that he played all of the instruments on his own recordings. So I'm like, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> so I would sit down and and reproduce the entire arrangement or the entire recording of a Prince song. Um, and yeah, and then that one would sound like him, but that was an academic exercise. Um to clone something to learn it. And even some writers do that. Going back to like Benjamin Franklin, they say um, in his autobiography, he said he got good at writing by copying writers he liked. And he would literally handwrite their essay over again mm. just to kind of feel his hand writing those words and then figure out why he liked it. But it's just so it started to feel natural for this for these um, well-formed sentences to be flowing out of his pen. Um, so that's a different thing. Um, but what I find most interesting, my favorite thing to do is, well, okay, two favorite things to do. But one of them is to take the technique of some music you like and figure out what is it about that melody you like it's a certain melodic leap or it's a way that it it 
jumps in a sixth here and then falls and then goes and jumps in another sixth there. And you think, ah, and if you really break it down, you could say, that's what I like about that melody. It's like, mm-hmm, does that sixth and then, mm-hmm, and does that sixth, that's what kind of makes it cool and repetitive, but not. And, and so then you go write a new melody using two sixths, the jump. And you're not imitating that melody, but you're imitating what you liked about it. You're mm-hmm. imitating the technique that made it good. Um, same thing with if you notice that there's some arrangements song-wise, I still call it arrangement. I think, you know, arrangement and production can be kind of intertwined, but I often think of arrangements as far as just like what instruments are coming in and dropping out. Right. Um, and I found that some of my favorite arrangements were the ones where it's like every four bars or so something was changing Mm. instrumentation wise. And I've never been a fan of these things where it's just one person with a guitar just sits there and, you know, it's a single voice and guitar for the entire song. That's never as interesting to me as the ones that, you know, bring in a bass halfway through or drop out this or bring in a couple more things. And it can even be kind of chamber-like. It doesn't need to be a lot of instruments, just a few, but, but combining them in different ways is so exciting. And you can imitate an arrangement you like with a song that you wrote. And so now nobody calls it copying. You're copying an arrangement, but it's still your song and nobody except, you know, a fellow (laughs) song arrangement crafter would realize that you copied the arrangement from another song. Mm. Um, Yeah, these are my favorite things to kind of um, play. Oh, and then the other one was where you just get, you make yourself some crazy little exercise. Like, I wonder if I could quantize a conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Like, could I take this conversation between Brian and Derek and and quantize it and clip it so that you can hear that they're voices, but you don't even, you don't, you can't even hear the words anymore. You know, it's like, you know, you'd only hear things like that. And, mm. and how would it go to quantize a conversation? Uh, but not, not oversimplify it into a two bar loop, but keep the, uh, the voice rising and falling in the, you know, like, make it a, uh, a longer 32 bar kind of thing, mm. you know, that has the, the rising and falling tones and the dramatic, uh, the, the, the dense parts and the sparse parts. And yeah, anyway, th- those are the kind of things I like. Can I make a drum sound like a flute and make a flute sound like a drum? Mm-hmm. Those kind of production challenges. Um, yeah. I think the arrangement one is, is a cool idea for sure. Um, it's something I've been meaning to do for a long time is to just make a maybe maybe you can do it with like markers in your DAW or or with um maybe even a MIDI clip that changes notifies you of changes but just mm-hmm. to take some pop songs with some great arrangements whatever and put that in your project and it'll say like okay this is where the bass came in this is where uh, the drums came in this is yes the drop or whatever the chorus and then kind of delete the song and then just build right. yours around that. I'd love right. to have a library of just songs I love, arrangements. Yeah. Something I need to sit down one day and just do. That would we be deep that. happy. <laughs> don't you, yeah. Don't you have stuff like that on your site? Well, I, I saw through your site these kind of like Ableton uh, libraries. One of them was like Costco cash registers or something, yeah. right? And yeah. So that would be amazing to kind of say, like hit arrangements minus 
the music or something like that. Like put your put your drums now. Put your bass here now. Put your guitar here. Yeah, we're not even going to tell you what song this came from, but follow these. That's that's a funny kind of like halfway paint by numbers. That's like color by numbers, but we're not going to tell you what color is. Right, you can't tell what you're painting. <laughs> put something here. Put the same color here at number at the, those four different number one spots, and then something here in those all those seven different uh, number three spots. But we're not going to tell you what it originally came from. Let's see how it turns out. Yeah, well, I'm um, I use Ableton Live as as you know, I guess. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Have I made that clear to everybody? <laughs> um. And one of the reasons I use it is because they have that session view. I don't know if you're familiar with it um, mm -hmm. or not, but the session view is where you, it, I think of it as the palette. That's where you put all right. your paints. And then the arrangement is where you go to the canvas, and put your paints on the canvas. I've always felt my whole life, I can come up with a bunch of like cool parts on my guitar, cool sections of songs, but I was never so sure how to put them together. I would mm -hmm. usually need the band together and we'd have to like play them and move them around. But what I love about live is you can put those parts in there and then sort of just play them, jam on them and switch between them. And I find when I, a lot of the writing I do, um, especially when I play these songs live is I have my sections and then I just kind of jam on it. And just after a while, the arrangement starts to blossom. It starts to just show up and it makes sense. Cool. But I like that a lot. Because you can stay in that session view and never commit to anything, it's very easy to never finish anything. You have these like 90% done songs, but you, you can't decide if that intro should be four bars or if that intro should not even happen. So I like the idea of having these like kind of um, prescribed arrangements because I think, mm. I think that's some, for me anyway, from what I've seen with a lot of people, I get stuck at deciding like, where to go and what to do and the faster i can get my paint on the canvas instead of just keep making more paint the more likely i am to finish so i need would, like the guides <laughs> yeah which is funny because it's the guides could sorry hold on i'm going to make a weird comparison here but let's do if you have a friend with a messy garage or a house it would be much easier for you to go to that friend's house and go, okay, get rid of this, 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 yeah. this, because you've got no emotional attachment. Yes. He's got, you know, so it's always easier for an outsider to come in and say, no, right, we're going to get this done now. We're going to give ourselves two hours and this can be done. So that's a good argument in favor of like a co-producer coming yeah. in yes. saying, all right, Brian, good ideas. We're going to get this all wrapped up in an hour. I'm going to help you make some of these decisions. Mm. <laughs> so, but then it's unrealistic for us to, all get a co-producer. So you're right. It's like in a way, a session view templates where you just saying, just, just do it this way. Just commit to it. Yeah. Yes, there are an infinite number of ways you could arrange and rearrange and rearrange and remix and remix your, your stuff, but do this one, do it like this and then call it done. Uh, that would be a great way to help people finish their unfinished stuff. Help make that help take the decision away from them. Sorry, I just I ran across this idea a couple of years, a uh, separate couple of days ago, in a book I was reading about Japan. It's called The Beginner's Guide to Japan by Pico Iyer, hmm. and he lives in Japan with his Japanese wife, but he doesn't speak Japanese, and he's never got a resident visa. He's lived there for thirty-two years on a tourist visa, 
coming in and out. And he does that on purpose because he says it it keeps him inquisitive about the culture. He he's never never fools himself for a minute to think that he actually understands anything about Japan. <laughs> he just continues cool. to observe for 32 years now. And um, he said, one thing I've observed is how it's considerate to take the decisions for somebody. So he said, my, when my wife says, where do you want to eat tonight? And I say, uh, anywhere you want to eat. He said, I think I'm being considerate by letting her choose. But actually, the more considerate thing is to just say, here, I'm taking you out to this place. I'll tell you when we get there. And to just take care of everything is actually more considerate because most of us feel the weight or the burden of making decisions. And if somebody takes that burden away from you, you appreciate it. So yeah, again, yeah, session view templates. Just do it like this. Just, just trust me. Just, yeah, we'll take this burden away from you of deciding how the final arrangement should go. Uh, that's a great comparison, really. I can't tell you how many times I've been in that situation. I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you just, it's up to you, anything you want. And uh, yeah. I just want you to pick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know about Brian Eno's, uh, uh, what are they called? Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Um, Oblique strategies. Yes. I, I was struggling with that name very recently myself, which cool. I thought was kind um, of funny. Yeah, every everybody listening to this, if you don't already know about oblique, Brian Eno's oblique strategies, just go search the web. You'll find it. It's it's your cultural imperative to understand Brian Eno's oblique strategies and keep a copy of them and turn to them occasionally as you're producing music. And you, the whole idea was to this. It would be a, a deck of cards that tells you what to do when you're supposed to. When you get stuck on anything, you're supposed to shuffle the deck and pick out one and you have to do what it says, whether you think it's a good idea or not. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But it, they're ambiguous. Like one of those, one of them would say, cut the cord or, um, you know, now double it or something yeah. like that. You know, they're, they're ambiguous enough that you could apply it to whatever kind of music you're doing and whatever way that it means something to you. Yeah. I think there's a website somewhere that will randomly generate one of them for you. So you just oh, good, reload good. the page and it's like, boom, start at the yeah, beginning. It should be. Yeah. <laughs> Make it a bookmark on your uh, your yeah. phone's browser so you can just grab your phone if you're stuck and hit that button and it'll give you a random command. Um, so, sorry, you asked uh, earlier about um, other little musical challenges. I don't um, claim to be a, a fountain of these or have better ideas than anybody else, but I'll I'll just give some examples and I think you can come up with your own better than I can. But, but for example, I like the challenge of say like, write a lyric using only nouns and no verbs, <laughs> but like that. still have it be interesting with, with an emotional impact. Like, can I make an emotional impact and have write a lyric that has meaning without verbs, mm. just nouns? Maybe you're allowed adjectives. Definitely not adverbs. <laughs> um, uh, then another one would be take like a classic melody, uh, something, you know, a, a great melody, whether it's Paul McCartney's Yesterday or Over the Rainbow from Wizard of Oz or whatever it is, like some amazing classic timeless melody and reverse it. Like whether it's maybe 
uh, you know, play it in, play the MIDI notes and then flip the MIDI notes. I think there must be some command where you can select and then flip, yeah. so inverse it in pitch or reverse it in time or both. And now make it your own, like actually keep it as is. And I don't think that that counts as um, a copyright nick or whatever. I don't think it, you, it would be considered stealing. I think it's a unique melody if you do this um, and then use it like that put your own lyrics to it or keep it instrumental or whatever but like take you know reverse a classic um melody another one would be to cover a song that's completely out of your realm so we talked earlier about the you know the um what was it the britney spears example um but i was thinking about what it would be like now in 2020 plus to take something that's just not in pop, pop culture anymore, like that 70s music that's just disappeared, like Super Tramp or Steely Dan, or like a 1920s pop song, you know, something that just like nobody listens to anymore. Nobody's aware of the song. Like go back and find hit songs from the 1920s or 1930s and do a cover version of one of those that appeals to you a lot. Or something that's just like, way out of your usual realm, something from 80s metal or something like mm -hmm. that. If you're like, you know, electronic music artist, you do something from 80s metal that nobody would ever think that, yeah, an electronic artist would be covering a song by Quiet Riot <laughs> or something, you know? <laughs> like something just way out of your realm and then make it as unlike the original as possible. Um, then sometimes you can, there's the creative challenge to do many things on one subject. Like, can I write 10 songs about food? Mm. Like, okay, we could, any of us could probably come up with one song about food. Could you actually write 10 songs about food? And if your answer is no, well then why not? Isn't that a challenge right there? Mm. Um, uh, well, think about how that would have... focus you if you were to do that. Sorry to interrupt, but just right. to jump in. Like, because if or, I'm going to write a song about food, I might talk about dessert and breakfast. But if I have to do 10, I'm going to uh -huh. cherry pie. <laughs> but that's been done, I guess, right? She's my cherry pie. Well, but, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, now you right. have to get granular and, and get into the detail. You might talk about eating at a restaurant, having an appetizer there. And then in the next one, it could be about grilled cheese sandwiches. <laughs> right. Instead of or, just food. Which or push so yourself far. to like, kind of like I said earlier with the, you know, using only nouns and not verbs and still trying to have an emotional impact. How could I write 10 songs about food that are actually worth listening to, that are actually good lyrics that have an emotional impact that take the listener somewhere that, um, that stir the emotions that aren't just me listing kitchen items. Um, yeah, like that can be, that's like a writing challenge that goes beyond like uh, you know, just being clever. It's like, well, now you gotta, if you're aiming to actually have an emotional impact, you know, this is like yeah. the biggest challenge of people that are really out there writing screenplays, novels, whatever. It's like, it's not enough to just say, hey, look, I did a screenplay. It's like, no, you gotta, <laughs> you're trying to make the, the person in the movie theater cry, mm. you know, like that's a real challenge to make somebody cry. Like, how can I, how can I make somebody cry with my writing? And how can I do that with a song about food, right? Like, mm. um, so then lastly, another idea is to collaborate with somebody 
really unlikely. You know, like use the internet to find a musician on SoundCloud that lives across the world from you. You find a musician that's in Ethiopia doing a certain style that's like way different from yours. But if you if you like it, you contact them and you're like, hey, <laughs> I live in Long Island. <laughs> I'm doing this electronic music. Yes, I know that you're playing this like, you know, traditional uh, Syrian music or whatever, but uh, what if we collaborated? Let's try to do something together. Mm. Uh, I think they could just open you up if you're doing a real 50-50 collaboration um, and not just saying, here, play this. It's a different thing. And I'm not talking about like hiring a musician to play their instrument on your thing. That's not a collaboration, you know, uh, that's a sideman. But to actually do a real collaboration with somebody that's very different from you and especially mm. like across the world would be amazing. Or even if it's not across the world, I mean, man, imagine like, imagine collaborating with like a gospel music artist or a country music artist or a, you know, thrash punk band or something like that. And you're going to collaborate with them and do something 50, 50, if they find it uh, worth their time too, would be really creatively opening. Hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Think of all the alternate ways of working you would come across and methods and just philosophies about what music should be. Yeah. Yeah. Very eye opening. Anyway, this is the kind of shit that just, this, I just find it endlessly interesting. This is like, to me, like being a musician is just endlessly interesting. It's not about the fame, the money, the whatever. It's like this stuff in itself is, is my favorite thing, man. When um, Years ago, Brian Eno wrote an autobiography that was called A Year. A, a publisher paid him to keep a daily diary for a year, and at the end of the year, they would publish it. And it was while he was doing the Achung Baby album. And it was interesting reading about how U2's album Achung Baby came about. But my favorite thing, I mean, besides hearing his interesting thoughts about producing music, um, was that when the album was done, he had a week off. And then he went straight into producing the next album by Coldplay or something like that. So it's like, he's just staying in this creative mode at all times. Whereas the band U2, when that album was done, well, now they had to put together the tour and now it was time for them to go on tour for like three years to perform those same 16 songs every night for three years. Like, oh God, that sounds miserable. Mm. What a terrible job. I have to go <laughs> play the same songs on stage every night. That sounds awful. But being in the studio and like constantly challenging yourself to come up with these uh, creative challenges, that's the interesting stuff to me. Yeah. And it's it's funny how there are really endless ideas you can come up with, endless challenges, but it's very hard to <laughs> to jump on those when you actually get in the moment to just commit to it. I, I think this, I, I've said this on the podcast before, I think that this is the, the modern creative person's real challenge is just there's endless opportunity and possibility and choices that it's so important to just, you need some kind of filter or funnel to yep. get rid of a lot of that. Yeah, that's what I like about this challenge approach is mm. to me, man, especially once you've got interesting synths and whatever, it's just too unlimited. It's like the only way you're gonna do anything is to limit yourself. Um, but I think of it as like the, the modern problem with like there are too many distractions online. There, mm. there's, there's too much sugar in the food store, you know, whatever it is, like in every way we have to limit 
ourselves in order to get by in this mm. world, you know? So it's, uh, yeah, setting limitations is, it can be very freeing in a way. Yeah. That's something you do a lot, I noticed. In in your writing even, you you have almost this like, um, on your blog I'm talking about, it's, it's almost like the Derek Sivers like field manual of how you live your life on so many, so many just things you've thought about and kind of eliminated decisions for yourself in advance. Mm. And, and you know, one that like struck me was the one you sent me when, when I asked you about coming on the show as you said, well, here, read this, you know, and it's about being a slow thinker. Ah, uh, yeah. And it's about taking your time and not being afraid to say, I don't know. And um, I think we're, you know, we, uh, me as a teacher, I've experienced this a lot. I'm the teacher, of course I have to know. So you're tempted right. to just, barf up an answer when someone asks you a question. But I found by saying, I don't know, it, it humanizes me for one. And I'm, I'm off the hook now <laughs> in the future for a lot of other things, but it gives you the chance to actually consider what you're going to say and not just jump in. Yeah. Um, after I posted that article, somebody in the comments was a salesman in India who read it saying, Yes, but I'm in sales. And so what do I do when I'm visiting a client to sell my product and they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? I can't just say, I don't know. And my reply was, absolutely, yes, you can. In fact, I think that would be really impressive hmm. if a salesman was trying to sell you, you know, whatever, a corporate software package and, and I ask you a question about it and you, and instead of, you know, spitting out some BS right away. Instead, you say, huh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. But you know what? I'm going to jot that down and I'm going to find out the real answer for you. And I'll let you know later this week, as soon as I find out the answer. I think that would be more impressive to a customer than somebody barking out an immediate answer. You know, kind of like, in general, I think it's like, we think that we're supposed to always have the immediate answer to everything, but in a way it's more impressive to admit that you don't know because that kind of implies that you're not going to flap your lips <laughs> unless yeah. you do know. You're not going to waste someone's you know, brain or air um, filling it with nonsense that you're going to find out and you'll let them know when you really do know. Mm. I mean, imagine if a politician would say that. Right. Just admit, God. like, I, don't, I really don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. I'll find out and yeah. I'll let you know when I know. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's it's um I guess counterintuitive in a way. You want to seem like you know what you're doing, but right, right. But then the counterintuitive thing is, you it actually kind of proves you to be smarter. Yeah, right. <laughs> if you say that's a good question, I actually don't know. I'll find out. It shows that you're thinking, not just you know having a knee jerk reaction. You don't think you know everything already. That's right. Yeah, nice to know, right. I think there's probably some like Socrates type of quote about like, like, you know, wisdom comes from knowing that you don't know or something like that. Yeah. And I think Einstein said something along the lines <laughs> of the more I know, the more I realize I don't know, you know right. that kind of idea. <laughs> Sorry. I laughed when you said Einstein, cause I thought you were doing that thing where it's like on the internet, anything, anybody can make up a quote and put, you know, dash, dash Albert Einstein yeah. or, you know, uh, <laughs> what was his name that, uh, sorry, who wrote Tom, uh, Tom Sawyer. Oh, Mark Twain. Mark, yeah, Mark yeah. Twain gets attributed to everything. Oscar Wilde gets attributed. Yeah. Einstein, 
yeah, Socrates. I, I went remember. through that recently with a Mark Twain quote with my class, and I, I said, I think he said this, but uh, <laughs> the point is not who said it. <laughs> right, right. The point is the wisdom behind it. Yeah. But, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for the thanks for a fun conversation. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, me too. And I think it's great stuff to think about and um, consider and just. Your, your the spirit of your work is, is always I've enjoyed a lot because it just this idea just to question things think about things before you do it and yeah. you know don't just do it because you're supposed to do it and, and right. you know if I th I think people should read your book um, anything you want oh well thanks but and, but <laughs> if you're gonna read my book just understand it's not gonna be about the kind of things we're talking about here the the story of my book anything you want is that. I never intended to write a book, but after I sold CD Baby and I learned some lessons doing so, uh, Seth Godin, who's a, just a personal hero of mine, yeah. said, it just called me, like called me on the phone out of the blue and said, Derek, it's Seth Godin. I said, oh, wow, hi. And he said, I'm, I'm launching a publishing company and I want you to be my first author. Wow. I said, oh my God, uh, okay. So um, I never intended to write a book, but he asked me to do that. Um, and so all I, anything you want is really just my story of how I started, grew, and sold CD Baby and just 40 little lessons learned along the way. But even though it, but it's not about this kind of stuff. On the other hand, my next book, which is called Your Music and People, is all about music. Uh, so that's not out yet. It's actually at the printers right now. Oh, I finished cool. writing it, but ah, it's- congratulations. Um, so um, that one's going to be done soon. But anyway, in the meantime, anybody who's listening to this, um, the reason I do these interviews is not, I mean, as you can tell, I'm not here to promote anything. Uh, I just do it honestly for the people I meet because like some of the coolest people I've ever met in my life are people that find me through hmm. things like this. So um, yeah, if you made it all the way to the end, go to my website, go to sivers.org and my email address is there in a big font and I reply to every email and I enjoy it. So introduce yourself, send me a hello and include the link to your music, damn it. I'm blown <laughs> away by how many musicians email me and they say, oh, I'm a musician. And then they just, you know, sign their email, Dave. And I'm like, well, come on, fucker, where's your music? Give me the link. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's always my next question. So yeah, include a link to your music. I like listening cool. while I'm answering emails. So uh, yeah, introduce yourself. Hmm. Well, I bring up the book mostly just it's littered with these like instances of you just not doing what people say you're supposed to do and, oh, and, yeah. well, and how that leads yeah. to the success of the company. And I think that's um, the musician thing, isn't it though? It's like yeah. yeah, the it's you get to make your own make your own game, make your own rules. Mm -hmm. So um you, you, uh, I think one thing we're getting at a lot with this is like this idea of when enough is enough and when um, things are done and finished and when to move on and when to try a new idea. Um, do you have a way of knowing when enough is? Because I think this is uh, something that can help us with finishing songs or finishing chapters in our life. I think it's a hard learned lesson you learn from experience that if you don't at some point just say this is done, then you're just not going to put anything out. Mm -hmm. Like you have to, you just learn over and over again. That it's just a little painful, but at some point 
I, I like that in English we use the word release, right? You release an album, you release a song. It's because you, someone you just got to let go of it. Just say, okay, there, it's it's out. Of course, I can improve it, and maybe I will someday. But you just have to let go of it in order to get it out there. So, um, yeah, I think the the, the real ch- anybody can uh, dabble with things but so few people actually get things launched that that should always be your challenge to get things launched. Mm-hmm. It's a, a project, um, a plan, a life plan, a song, a career move, whatever it is, you got to get it launched. Just get started. Well, Great. get finished. No, no, get yeah. finished. Anybody okay. can get started. <laughs> Sorry. That was, like, anybody can get started. The challenge is to like get it finished. That's the hard thing. So I think that's the, uh, that's what you got to focus on is how can I finish this? Um, and that, that shapes a lot of how I work is I hate multitasking. I really tend to just do one thing to completion. Even if it takes me months or years, I'll only do that one thing until it's done. And then I'll do the next thing. So I tend to, I'm very, very like single focused like that. I, I don't multitask to a fault. I just, I have to just do one thing at a time until it's done. Well, um, you know, there's all that science about, we can't really multitask anyway. We're just shifting. Right. And, and, and um, I don't think I enjoy things as much when I'm, I think if you really pay attention to everything you do, you can find a way to enjoy it. I proctored a, a three hour test yesterday and it wasn't that bad. I'm supposed to just sit there and watch students take a test. And I found a way to sort of entertain myself. I read the test. I thought about what they're trying to get at with this exam and what... I could have sat there and said, this sucks. I wish I was somewhere else. I wish I was doing something else. I wish... But of course, I would have had a terrible time. Yeah. I'm not an expert at making the best of every situation, but once in a while... Um, you realize it when you do it. And and I think it comes a lot from not wishing you were somewhere else or doing something else or being distracted with other things. Or there's also um, that do it anyway, even if you're not enjoying it. So I just yesterday finished like a month long project of in short refactoring my database Um which was just, it was a lot of work. I've been using the same database for like 10 or 20 years. It needed a lot of overhauls. I had to change the functions and put them into schemas. And it was a lot of like monotonous work. And it was many, many, many 12 hour days of doing this one monotonous thing. And I'd be like, oh, oh my God, I'd like to stand up and I'd just go get some caffeine. And I was like, ah, I hate this. I want to do anything else. I'm like, okay, time to get back to it. It's like, you don't even have to like it. There are some things in life, it's like, you know, you need to do even creative things. Like there are some songs that it's like, oh man, it, this thing needs a fourth verse. It, it's it got to be there. And I, I can't just repeat the first verse again. I got to take it somewhere. And it's like, you can kick and scream and make noises, but it's like, just get it done. Um, even if you're not enjoying it, this isn't, it doesn't have to be all pure pleasure you know uh, again deep happy versus shallow happy there you go shallow happy is doing thing. whatever you feel like doing now um deep happy is it, shallow happy is what you want now deep happy is what you want most mm. and i think all of us what we want most is to to finish things to launch them to get them out there which isn't always what you want now 
I think even one of the Gershwin's, Ira Gershwin, a famous songwriter from long ago, I think he said, I hate writing, but I love having written. (laughs) And that's a famous quote because it's a wonderful reminder that the process itself can suck. Yeah. But sometimes the process is fun, all the creative stuff we were talking about, but sometimes the process just sucks, but you do it because it, it, it's going to get it done. And when it's done and it's out there and people are listening to it, it's so worth it. Mm. That's always something I like to remind people um, because especially when they're learning, when they're new into their music production is, you know, it, it looks like fun on Instagram and it looks exciting <laughs> here and there, but there's a lot of blood and sweat mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and just know that that's going to happen because sometimes people they're learning and they're like, you know, I, I just thought this was, it's just not as fun as I thought it would be. I'm like, well, it's not easy. It can be a lot of fun, but don't mistake in that. You know, it gets tough and that can drive you crazy. Yeah. And like yeah. you said, there's no answer. There's no right or long, wrong answer, just yeah. answers. I guess it's probably the process of becoming a better and better musician is probably the process of making quicker decisions. Mm. And I think I found it interesting when I found out the, the word decide comes, the, the Latin root of decide means to cut off. That when we decide something, it's we are cutting off the other options. And so it's, yeah, you, you especially the electronic musician, uh, music, mm-hmm. you got to make decisions. They're just way too, they're, they're always more patches, more sounds, more, you know, banks you can go through. You got to just make your decision and just say, okay, this is good enough. Keep mm-hmm. going. I heard um, one of the quotes I heard some, uh, I was at um, Gumroad is the company I used to do all my digital distribution with my packs and stuff. And um, it was a dinner they had, which was really cool that they even did this, but um, they had a quote, enough is a decision. And I just thought that was great because you know, you decide it's enough and, and sometimes you just need to decide. And that goes for making music, that goes for making money, that goes for, going out to the party for an hour. <laughs> it's a decision, you yeah. know, and, and decide, realize that it's not, you don't ever get there. You never, with making a song, you know this, it's not like you hit a point and like a little coin pops up on your screen and a star and it says, you did it, <laughs> you're done. <laughs> right. Your right. book, That's right? Did you get one of those when you finished your book before you said <laughs> yeah, it Yeah, right. <laughs> like a little like nice sounding, you know, video game success tune plays. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. You have to make that decision. Well, I thank you so much for your time. Um, You've been very generous and um, very thoughtful in your answers, and I appreciate that. And and actually, the other thing I meant to say is you made me very thoughtful in my approach to the process too by being a slow thinker. You know, really. Oh, thanks. So it it, it helped me too. So thank you. Yeah, it's fun to uh, to you know my the whole thing with um, deciding to to rock my slow thinking approach is that I love going past the first idea. I think about that all the time. It's like whenever you're, whether coming up with an idea or answering a question, the first idea that comes to mind, I think is overrated. I think we tend, people mistakenly think that the first thing that comes to mind is somehow more authentic or more sincere. Mm -hmm. But I think it's usually the first thing that comes to mind is thoughtless. And it's, it's the next two or three things that come to mind that, that are always more interesting 
more considered uh, digging a little deeper. So um, yeah, I think it's fun before having a conversation like this, how we traded a couple emails about what we could talk about. Yeah. Steers it into a more interesting conversation. Yeah, so, let it simmer yeah. a little bit. And yeah. So thanks for well. that too. Cool. Anyway, well, yeah. Thanks, Brian. I love this. Uh, and Let's do it again someday. That'd be great. Um, I'm going to wrap it up. We'll wrap it up with everybody. Then we'll just finish up off the air real quick and then we'll be on our way. So everybody, thank you for listening. Um, thanks to Derek, of course. Check out his website, sivers.com. It's S-I-V. dot nope, org. Dot org. Oh my God, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. S-I-V-E-R-S dot O-R-G. Okay, yes. Not com. Dot org. And um, yeah, poke around there a little bit. There's a lot of a lot of good wisdom and nuggets and things that you can apply to a lot of aspects of your life, including music. And send me an email and introduce yourself. That's and, my favorite And part. send your music. Yes. <laughs> I feel the same way too. I, when I get an email, like you, I, you used my sound. I want to hear it. Let me hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, I mean, come on. Every musician should just have, just go into your Gmail settings or whatever and include an email signature that just right. automatically goes out, that just has your URL at the bottom. Like, come on. It's just... And that's, that's that'll no make you feel less icky if that's the problem where you don't want to feel like you're self-promoting. It's it's just right. automatically at the bottom. It, you know, yeah. you can click on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So thanks a lot, everybody, and I hope you all have a great day. <laughs>